Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is also the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. So that's why it's called Imaginal Inspirations. My guest today is Dr. Thomas R. Verney, who is a psychiatrist, academic, writer, poet, blogger for Psychology Today, contributing columnist to the Stratford Times, and podcaster, as I found out recently. And this is entitled Pushing Boundaries with Dr. Thomas Verney, and we'll link that in the follow-up resources. He's the author of eight books, including The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, which was published in 27 countries, amazingly, and most recently, The Embodied Mind, and that is available in a number of languages, and he's the author of 47 scientific papers. He's also previously taught at Harvard University, University of Toronto, York University in Toronto, St. Mary's University in Minneapolis, and the Santa Barbara Graduate Institute. Uh, so, um, warm welcome, Thomas, to uh, Imaginal Inspirations. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. <clears throat> and um, I'm going to go jump straight into the first question, um, which is, what was a shaping moment involving your choice of work? It was more than a moment. What happened? What happened was that. In 1949, my parents and I, we uh, left Czechoslovakia, where I was from, where I was born, and uh, we uh, we escaped to Vienna. This was in 1949, one year after the communists took over the democratic government in Czechoslovakia. So we escaped just with a few suitcases to Vienna, and uh, we rented a small apartment and in that small apartment, there was a bookshelf. And there were several books on that bookshelf. And one of them was called The Interpretation of Dreams by Freud. And uh, I was at that time 13 years old. And mm -hmm. somehow I've heard of Freud, like I really don't know. But like in my mind, this was an important guy, like I should read this. And so I, I had no idea really who Freud was, and I had no idea what the book was about, but it just kind of rang a bell, perhaps intuition, who knows. And so I started reading that with a uh, German-Czech dictionary, word for word. I started translating, learn German by reading Freud. Oh. And, and I really took to it, like it spoke to me. I loved the way, the, the method of inquiry, you know, like sort of like peeling an onion, uh, layer after layer, getting deeper and deeper into the unconscious. I, I just loved that approach. And after reading with the book at the age of 13, uh, I made up my mind that I would become a psychiatrist. So that was definitely the sort of motivational factor that sort of started me off on this journey. But it almost got interrupted when I entered medical school in Toronto, at the University of Toronto, 
because like this was 1955. 1955, I entered pre-meds, medicine in 1957. So a lot of the courses were taught by sort of doctors who had served in the armed services during the Second World War. And they got about six months of education in psychiatry. They were really more like engineers or surgeons. They were not my idea of psychiatrists. I mean, these were not people interested in psychology. They were interested in drugs and how to sort of quickly get people back out onto the street, if possible. And they had a very jaundiced view of, of actually, of, of psychiatry. Like, I got the impression that the only thing that psychiatrists in private practice would do would be to see rich ladies preoccupied with the fate of their lap dogs. Hmm. So this is not the way I wanted to spend my life. So then I, I in my final year, I thought, well, I will, be, I, will be, I will become an obstetrician because that also appealed to me. And then I had the opportunity to, to spend one month on the obstetrical wing of a large hospital. And I just hated, hated the way obstetricians treated women. And they would be yelling at them, push, push, push. Uh, it was very unfeeling, insensitive, gross, really. So at that point, I made up my mind during the summer, I'll go to a large psychiatric hospital in the United States which paid the incredible sum of $180 a month. <laughs> Can you imagine? Those were, yes. the, those were the days. And $180 a month plus room and board. So I went there, and there were very, very few doctors around. And so they said, you can work on whatever service you like. And I chose to work on the emergency service where the really, really sick people came in, right? And I had a tiny little office, and I knew nothing about psychiatry at that point. All I knew is that you had to take a history. And then I knew my dreams, right? Because I read Freud. So I would sit down with these people, and I would ask them about their family and what led up to their hospitalization. And believe it or not, within a few days, the word got around that there was a psychiatrist because they treated me as if I was a psychiatrist. I, I was only a fourth-year student. That there's a psychiatrist around who actually talks to people because huh. nobody, nobody else did. Nobody else did. Amazing. Uh, the psychiatrist would walk through the wards. I mean, this was a large mental hospital, 5,000 patients. They would walk through the wards. They would prescribe medications, and they would walk out. And in the afternoon, they would study for their exams or they would play tennis, but they would not talk to patients. The nurses and the orderlies spoke to the patients. Psychiatrists did not speak to the patients. That was below them. So the word got around that there's a psychiatrist who actually speaks to patients. There would be these long lineups of patients in front of my little office door. 
And then I noticed, because I was there for three months, I noticed that my patients, I mean, the people that I saw when we were under my care, responded much faster and got discharged at twice or three times the rate of the other patients. And so I could see with my own eyes, so to speak, from my own experience, that psychiatrists really, you know, did a lot of good, that we could affect more than just rich ladies, you know, concerned about their pets. And so that's when I made up my mind to go into psychiatry, and I've never regretted it. That's so interesting, Thomas. I mean, fascinating story. Two two observations, if I may. Um, sure. One is it's, um, I think, interesting that you should have read Freud in Vienna when, of course, Freud yes. was yes. was uh, in Vienna himself and was part yes. of a very influential yes. set yes. of intellectuals and artists around the end of the 19th century. And then the second thing that really struck me, apart from you know, the behavior of psychiatrists and, and just prescribing drugs, was the behavior of the obstetricians because last week um, I had an interview. I, I did an interview with Michel Audin. Oh yes, um, you know yes. who is a yes. pioneer in this in this yes. field. And in fact, he interestingly started as a surgeon, and, yes. and then he moved into into you know, his work with birth and perinatal pre and mm. perinatal life. But he was very emphatic that you want to have as little cognitive input and anxiety in the woman giving birth as possible. You don't yes. want the, no. um, the the neocortex engaged no. at all. No. It just interferes. And so yes. paradoxically, yes. your obstetricians were doing exactly the wrong thing. Um, that was not that the time. only thing. That was not the only thing that they did wrong, but you're right. Yes. 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 No, I think the uh, of course, helping people is also interfering, isn't it? Yes. Um, yes. So, um, so interesting. I, I want to go on to the next question. Sure. Um, and this is about whether you had during this process any any helpful and influential mentors or teachers, and and what advice they might have given you to kind of set you on your way. Well, I've been very lucky. Um, it gets me emotional when I think about this. I'm sorry. Uh, and I don't know why people actually apologize when they get emotional, but it seems to be part of our culture. Anyway, um, yes, there have been uh, many people in small ways and large ways that have uh, truly helped me um, navigate uh, my journey through this life. Yes. Uh, and I guess perhaps the person who stands out as my father. Um, my father was a very wise man. He was a lawyer. And um, he was he he was very socially conscious. He was always supporting the poor and the oppressed. And he said to me, make sure that at the end of each day, you leave the world a little bit better than when you found it. How wonderful. I love that. I think that's good advice um, from anybody. And, and of course, it provides you with a kind of ethical guideline, doesn't it? Yes, yes, yes. And the, the other person that I 
really have taken to heart is is uh, is a quote attributed to uh, Albert Einstein that you may have heard about before when he said not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted I know that quote yeah. yes it's yeah. a very very true one. yes yes um, that's one of my favorites yes and then you know all throughout life I've had I've had I've had mentors sometimes I would seek them out myself I learned that that if you approach a professor uh, at university and you tell him or her that you're interested in the subject that they're teaching and you would like to know more they're usually open to seeing you privately and so I've had many meetings throughout my university um, years and there were many because to become a psychiatrist takes 11 years that I would seek out and have um, have meetings with and have coffee with and they're just too many to to tell but they have had a profound influence on me also i think that's really it's also the function of the elder isn't it yes um, yes and and it, it, this is something that you know we can move into as we get older um, by yes. you know, mentoring and advising younger people when they ask um, absolutely yes and i think this is a very important function Yes, um, yes, it is. Yes. I, I want to come on now to to books that have shaped your life and thinking. You've mentioned one already, which is um, Freud. Freud's interpretation of dreams. And I have a, a hardback of that myself, obviously, in English, um, yes. but probably dating from about 1910. So quite an early. Uh, yes, um, yes. Very edition. early. Yes, yes, yes. Well, my grandmother when I was very small, very young, would read me uh, from Grimm's fairy tales uh, pretty well every night that I spent with her. And that has uh, influenced me all my life. I became very interested later on, after I became a psychiatrist, in the meaning of fairy tales, particularly Jungian psychoanalysts have been very interested in sort of the unconscious meaning of fairy tales. So I really loved those. And then um, when I was, I guess, early teens, I read Le Miserable, which I love mm. by Victor Hugo. And then The Three Musketeers, I love that by Alexander Dumas. Later on in life, I don't know whether you're familiar. Are you familiar with Jerzy Kosinski? No, that doesn't uh, oh. say anything to me. Oh, well, Jerzy. I obviously should be. I think you might be. Um, Jerzy Kosinski uh, was from Poland originally, uh, came to the United States, um, lived in Hollywood, wrote a lot of very sort of Kafkaesque uh, short stories. And the one that really impressed me was called The Painted Bird. The Painted Bird, highly recommended. Have a look at it. It's an amazing story of a young boy in Poland during the German occupation and how he tries to survive sort of going from village to village and the kind of experiences uh, that he has. It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing book. And Jerzy Kosinski is, well, was, he, he passed away, was an amazing person. And he writes in this kind of a Kafkaesque way 
and of course, you know, I'm also very fond of Kafka, uh, who is another writer that I admired. And then, um, well, one of your countrymen, almost, R.D. Lang. Oh, yes. Hmm. Uh, well, he is my countryman because I'm a Scot. Oh, you're a Scot. Okay. <laughs> so that, that, that works. That yeah, works. It does. Yes. R.D. Yes. 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 Lang, I, I had, I read him first and, and then I met him in person several times, several times. Have you ever met no, him? No, I never did, sadly. Sadly is true. Sadly is right. Because he was, when he was sober, he was an amazing person. And when you were with him, he looked into your eyes and you really felt seen. Mm, that's a very special gift. I, it's a very special gift. I have really had that experience with anyone. Uh, he was he was an amazing guy, and I I loved his I loved his book. I mean, he wrote many books, but the one that sort of really influenced me is called "The Facts of Life" by R. D. Lang. It's probably out of print, but it's it's an amazing book, and that's where he talks a lot about what later I call pre-imperinatal psychology. He just sort of writes about remembering, people remembering events from before they were born and how that is possible. And so as far as I know, he was one of the pioneers of that area that I became involved with, with uh, later on in life. I was going to ask you, and this leads nicely into it, you know, how you came to, to write The Secret Life of the child and and also were you surprised at how successful it was as a book i was incredibly surprised i was incredibly surprised um the the the, the way that the way that happened was that i had a patient in my office uh working with a patient in my office uh on on a dream actually and suddenly he started crying like a little baby. And wisely enough, I did not interfere, let him cry for about 10 minutes. Then he came out of it, so to speak. I asked him what happened. He said he had just found himself in a baby crib. He was a baby and he was crying after his mother. And then he said, being a somewhat skeptical young lawyer, he said, uh, there's something wrong with this picture because I actually have seen photographs of myself in a crib and that was taken in a blue crib. Like all the photographs are from a blue crib and the crib that I just found myself in was white. So there's, there's something wrong with this. So he was still a young man. I asked him to go home, speak to his mother and find out perhaps she can throw some light on this. So she, he came back next week and he said, this is truly amazing, but it seems that the first few weeks of my life after I was born, uh, my parents did not have enough money to buy me a crib. Uh, they borrowed a crib from a neighbor. That crib was white. Only four weeks later did they buy me my own crib. That was blue. That's where all the pictures were taken. So this man had no way of knowing and obviously you know this is not something that parents talk about you know do you remember being in a white crib 
So that was pretty exciting. I heard that, but you know, I was very well educated, you might say, you know, having been to the University of Toronto, having been to Harvard, I was taught that children before the age of two don't remember anything. So this was simply not possible. And so I put it out of my mind. I didn't forget about it, but I just put it aside. But then I started having more and more experiences like that with my patients. And then one day, uh, one of my one of my colleagues who knew by at that time that I was beginning to take an interest in sort of prenatal memories, she told me that when she was pregnant, she would sing a certain song that was very popular at that time, one song by Pete Seeger, a folk singer at that time. And after the, her son was born, he would be fussy and start crying, and she would sing him various songs. But the only song that immediately calmed him down was that Pete Seeger song that she would sing to him while she was pregnant. So I started putting two and two together. And then, you know, you were asking about mentors. So again, I had this really good fortune. I went to see a person that I knew only briefly, an obstetrician, and I told him a little bit about the, these experiences that I was having. And he said, well, there's a huge meeting in Rome on psychosomatic obstetrics and gynecology. Why don't you present a paper on that? And by that time, I knew that people who present papers are better treated than just ordinary, you know, mm -hmm. uh, audience members, attendees, participants. So I said, sure, why not? So I wrote a paper which was called The Psychic Life of the Unborn Child. And into it, I put everything at that time that I knew about prenatal development. And lo and behold, it was accepted. Not only was it accepted for a presentation, it was accepted. And again, this is where good luck comes in. You know, you can work very hard in life, but you still need luck. And my luck was that they put me on the morning session with R.D. Lang. Oh, my goodness. Right. So, <laughs> you know, suddenly this totally unknown young psychiatrist from an unknown country, Canada, was on the main program. And there were other leading lights of psychosomatic obstetrics in the world. Like there were 500 people there from all over the world. And so I delivered my 20-minute 20, 20 paper, whatever, and I could see right away that there was a real excitement in the crowd. Like it was, you, you could pick it up, you could feel it. It was palpable. And so at the end of my presentation, I said, if you would like to continue this dialogue, come and uh, see me at five o'clock in this room. And at five o'clock, lots of people, including R.D. Lang, came to my room and wanted to talk to me. And so when I saw that kind of response, and when I had the opportunity of meeting some of these really, really fine experts in the field, that's when I made up my mind to write a book about it. And so that's what gave me the impetus to write the book. And then it just hit the publishers in New York after it was written. Every publisher in New York wanted to publish it. It was it was it was amazing. It was I had the best time of my life. For two days I went to New York 
and I would go every hour on the hour, I had a meeting with a publisher. And essentially, they were not really interested in the book. They were interested in me. You know, could I could I make a good presentation on on TV or radio? That's what they were interested in. Okay. So and they decided that I could. So so they started bidding for the book, and it was very exciting. And so Simon and Schuster published it, and they really supported it because publishers in nine in the nineteen eighties had money, and today they don't. And so, like my present book, The Embodied Mind, published with, uh, you know, a very, a very good publisher, but they don't have any money for PR. So all the PR that has to be done, I have to do more or less myself. And of course, you know, it's not my field. So it's it's a problem. Uh, but Pegasus is a wonderful publisher, but the embodied mind really sort of lives on its own and word of mouth. Yes, that's a familiar story these days, I think. And I think you really answered my next question, um, unless you wanted to add anything more, which is sure. about a key key moment of insight in your work, especially in relation to the nature of consciousness and what you've said and the story you've told about how you came to be, become interested and how it then took off, I think is exactly a key moment of insight. But maybe there's another key moment of insight connected with the embodied mind. Well, in terms of consciousness, I'm, I'm still struggling with the concept. I think the key moment in terms of my own personal development I was doing a group reversing session. Uh, I, I was I was the client. I was lying on the floor, and there was someone who was doing sort of an induction. There was some classical music playing in the background, and there were about twenty of us lying sort of on the floor and just listening to the induction. You know, uh, going back in time. Uh, breathing deeply, that sort of thing. And suddenly, suddenly, I had this feeling that I was moving towards a light. I mean, this is this is so stereotypical. I'm sorry, I'm I apologize, but this is exactly what happened. I was moving towards a light, and it was very, very, very bright. It was kind of a golden light. It was bright, but it wasn't blinding me. And I just felt this incredible love coming out of it. And I knew where I was at the same time. Like I could hear people around me making sounds. I knew I was lying on the floor. And then at the same time, I was in this other space. And I kind of, after a while, I sort of had a choice, or I thought I had a choice, of just staying there or going into it and never coming back and deciding I'm coming back. And I came back, uh, came back into the room. But it changed me. I've never been quite the same since. I can imagine. I mean, it's, it's a classic, what we call near-death experience, even though you arguably weren't near-death unless right. there was something... Um, peculiar happening to your body at the time. Yes, yes. Um, but it's like it's to me this this is what we say in the Galileo Commission of consciousness having 
accessed deeper structures of reality. And I'm sure you would say that the sense of reality that you had during that experience was very intense, or am very I wrong? Intense. No, 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 you're absolutely right. Yes, no, absolutely right. And so, you know, that has influenced, you know, my, my writing, because, you know, I do believe that there is something beyond determinism, you know, I, I, I don't believe that science with its deterministic kind of clockwork Newtonian physics has all the answers. And so I really make space in my mind and in my writing for a much more holistic and spiritual approach. Although I don't quite have the solid answers that you seem to have. Well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but uh, uh, we're coming towards the end, um, Thomas. Uh, so I was going to ask you, sure. you referred to Einstein. Um, yes. Do you have a proverb you live by or other favorite quotes you'd like to share? I do have one. I have that at the beginning of my book of The Embodied Mind. And it's by Adlai Stevenson, actually. And this is the quote. If we value the pursuit of knowledge, which both of us do, we must be free to follow wherever that search may lead us. The free mind is not a barking dog to be tethered on a 10-foot chain. No, excellent. That's very good. And I think you know, if you take that view, then that helps you stand up against peer pressure and orthodoxy when they criticize you for taking a different view because you know without original thinking no progress will be made in any field at all exactly exactly yes yeah that's why i like my program pushing boundaries because i like to interview people who are doing just that you know who are thinking outside the box well indeed i mean that that's necessary for for progress Yes. And then finally, Thomas, um, is there any advice you'd give to your younger self from your current vantage point? Well, believe in yourself, work hard, and things will turn out well. Well, I think that's a wonderful message to end on. So thank you so much for your time, and, and uh, we'll look forward to keeping in touch. David, thank you so much. It has been really a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Mm -hmm.